This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for Chip Chat. And I know it's been a few weeks. We had some internet troubles. We had some vacation issues. But Chip Chat is back. Chip Gibbons is here with us. Hey, Chip. I would just like to clarify that my internet is just fine. I have not gone on any vacations. That's true. None of the uh, none of the issues related to the Chip Chat hiatus are on Chip Chat. Uh, I take half responsibility. Um, I don't even think Sam Knight should take responsibility. We're allowed to go on vacation, but uh, the internet issue was on my end. And it's not really my fault. It's Comcast's fault, as has been addressed on a prior podcast. But oh yeah, I had a. Uh, my old apartment, I had terrible, terrible luck with, with Comcast. They kept coming over, and they could never set the internet up. And finally, one guy was like, well, there's no internet in this building. And it's like, no, that's actually not true. Everyone else has internet but me. Mm-hmm. Do not tell me you're putting in a work order for the whole building. <laughs> yeah, I had well, to. We'll add this to the list of grievances. when. Interestingly been... enough, the problem was finally solved when... They stopped trying to use the modem I had purchased for myself and put in the modem that I was that you had to rent from them, and then the internet magically worked. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Propri- was... Proprietary. Uh, uh, that no one trying... could explain why that was, and like the modem was like approved for like Comcast use at like Xfinity exp- approved on the box. Mm. Yeah, I was told uh, something similar in the sense I moved into a new building and was informed that I'm the only unit in the entire building that wasn't wired uh, for Comcast. But uh, that's all in the past now. It's been resolved. We're back doing Has chip it chat. Been with Xfinity, is it ever really resolved? True. Good point. I, I was uh, I did a Skype interview earlier for, for Means Morning News, and I had pretty shitty internet connection. So maybe it hasn't been fully resolved, mm. but... Uh, just going to keep plugging away. Anyways, if uh, this is your first time, we will add this to the list of grievances when we eventually nationalize these telecoms uh, firms and uh, strip the executives of their personal assets. Yeah, we'll, we'll add it to the agenda of the uh, truth and reconciliation committees with, uh, with the Internet service providers. Um... <laughs> Mark Ma- Mark Marin will be on that committee, I think. Anyway, uh, if you're Old Twitter joke for you, if you're first tuning in to Chip Chat, Chip is uh, an esteemed journalist. He's also the policy director over at Defending Rights and Dissent, though he speaks only on his own behalf for this segment once a week, Chip Chat. And uh, it's a good thing we're doing it because we're in the midst of a pretty important developing story in terms of the Julian Assange extradition trial going on in London, which we're going to dive into here in just a second. But first, um, some sad news since we last had Chip Chat, and that is that uh, um, a, a tireless activist, um, inspiring guy here in Washington, D.C., uh, Kevin Zeese passed away suddenly last week. And uh, I know he was a friend of yours, Chip, and uh, yeah. I figured we'd uh, just start by by talking about that a little bit. Yeah, I I I knew I knew Kevin Zeese. It it feels weird to put that in the past tense. Uh, I knew Kevin Zeese for for 14 years. I, I first met him in February of 2006. He was running for Senate in Maryland with the backing of both the Green and the Libertarian Party. Uh, 
Um, he almost did not get the Libertarian Party endorsement because of his support for single-payer health care. <laughs> it was sort of a bizarre thing. I'm not going to dwell on that. Uh, but he had a really long life of, of activism. He started out doing uh, drug policy reform. He was a supporter of, of ending the drug war and, and legalizing, you know, drugs, which is a common sense position. But, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, that was a really difficult and hard position to take. He used to tell me this story of how he went on the Gerardo Rivero show and the show started unbeknownst with him with like a recording of like Geraldo going on like a SWAT raid to like kick down someone's doors. And he was just so disgusted with, you know, turning these people having their lives ruined into a television spectacle. Geraldo also demanded all of the panelists and, and the audience take drug tests. Kevin refused as is the ACLU person. Uh, he also used to go on the show Crossfire, which had someone, I believe, you know, Sam, uh, Patrick Buchanan on it. And Patrick Buchanan would rail and, and rant at him about how he shouldn't legalize marijuana. And then they would go to commercial break, break and uh, Mr. Buchanan would tell Kevin that he agreed with them fully, which made a lot of sense. But then he would <laughs> come back from commercial break and be, be asinine. Uh, but, you know, after after the Iraq war, Kevin got very involved in anti-war stuff, which is what I think most of you probably, if you know him, know him for. He was one of the embassy protectors who stayed inside the Venezuelan embassy with the permission of the Venezuelan government to prevent this illegal seizure of it uh, in violation of international law. He had done a lot of things like that. Uh, in uh, early 2011, he, he was telling me about his plan to stage this protest model after uh, Tahrir Square and, and the um, Indignados movement in, in Spain, you know, an occupation uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And sometime after that, Adbusters put out their call for occupying Wall Street. And, and the two sort of coalesced somewhat, although not always easily. And, you know, he had the idea, you know, early on of, of staging occupation style protest against sort of the corporate dominance and income inequality and, and endless wars. He was involved in some sort of camp out to protect net neutrality. He was one of the Bacchus eight. I don't know if anyone even remembers this anymore, but uh, when in the process leading up to the Affordable Care Act, you know, they had these big sort of broad health care um, roundtables where, where all ideas were on, on the table except for one idea, and that was single payer. John Conyers wasn't invited to the White House roundtable. Uh, no single payer advocates were allowed to testify before the Senate Finance Committee's roundtable on, on health care. So a number of activists, including Kevin, got, got arrested during that. And, you know, the issues that I worked closely with him a lot on were with Chelsea Manning, the whistleblower, uh, Julian Assange, my, my co-worker, Sue Udry, hosted a, um, a press oppressor with Chris Hedges, James Goodall, and Daniel Ellsberg last week. And, and Kevin actually had uh, reached out to her about doing so the day before he, he passed away. It was quite, quite sudden. And, and on a personal note, you know, Kevin was the first person to publish my writing. 
He was very supportive of me pitching to Counterpunch and Truth Out. Him and his partner, Margaret Flowers, used to do a regular regular column in Truth Out. And when they were meeting with their editor, Leslie Thatcher, you know, he told her that he was really happy Truth Out was publishing my work and that they should keep doing so. So we probably wouldn't have a chip chat without Kevin Zees. I mean, it's an elongated process from, from Truth Out to chip chat. There are many, uh, many intermediary steps there, but, you know, well, it's just, it's a tremendous loss on a personal level because he was, you know, one of the first people to really be supportive of my work as, as, as a writer. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was, I don't know if I would have pursued it with, I mean, I, I don't know, probably I would have, maybe I wouldn't have, I, I don't know. It's hard, hard to imagine. And it's, it's just really hard to think about him being gone. It's, you know, I've, I've, I read about it on, on Twitter. I was, I was, you know, debating whether or not I should get out of bed and I, you know, look to see what, what time it was on, on my, my, my phone. And, you know, you can't get on your phone without getting on Twitter because it's poisoned all of our brains. And I, I just saw that he was gone from, from the Dia Benjamin. And it was, it's a weird way to learn about someone's death. And it was just very unreal for the first 12 hours. But, you know, it's it's set in since then. Well, uh, Chip Chat, one of the uh, one of the enduring legacies of Kevin Zeese, I guess. Uh, not his not his uh, most profound uh, legacy. Um, Sam Knight and I had uh, were lucky enough to uh, be able to interview him. Which I, time is so weird right now. I don't even remember if the occupation of the Venezuelan embassy was this year or last year. It was last year. Last year. Um, we uh, interviewed him and Margaret Flowers as they were occupying the embassy. We were standing on the street shouting up to them uh, questions. I believe oh we. God, I was there. Yeah, we saw you there, Chip. Uh, we did a little segment with you. Donald Bornstein uh, was there with us recording. I'm not sure if that ever ever made it to, a, to, to air or anything. I think we were doing so, it for Means Somewhere TV. in the bowels of Means TV. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, just just brave activists, um, extraordinarily generous with their time. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a real loss for the community here in D.C. Yeah. I, I, I just wanted to say that uh, they say that bad news comes in three and uh, hopefully... Uh, we're done on certain bad news for a while because uh, before Kevin Zeese died, there was David Graeber dying. And uh, before David Graeber, it was Michael Brooks dying. Um, you know, we, we've had enough death yeah. on the left. All sudden, now. too. All just uh, sudden things. It's um... And all very generous people who touched a lot of lot of people. On, on the left and and helped them. I mean, I didn't I didn't know David Graeber or Michael Brooks, but I knew people who did, and they all talked about how you know charitable and 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 generous with their time and supportive of their work was. I mean, it's just these are huge losses. Yeah, but uh, we carry on. So um, let's talk about what's going on in London. Uh, the basic contours of this extradition hearing you have the assange defense making the case for him being a uh, journalist and publisher who revealed 
um, serious wrongdoing in crimes by the U.S. government that were then widely disseminated in newspapers around the world and serve as the basis for still ongoing uh, prosecutions. And then you have uh, the, the prosecution, the U.S. government, um, basically arguing, no, he's a hacker and he needs to come back to the United States and face the up to 175 years in crown prison. prosecution on behalf of the U.S. Yes, yes, right. Um, uh, which is a bizarre, bizarre thing to have. Yeah, no, so Julian Assange's extradition hearings have entered another phase. It's estimated it will last three weeks, although they've been having terrible technical problems and have been lucky to get through one witness a day because of them. Because of COVID, things are sort of remote. So most of it's actually sort of better. I don't know. In some ways, you know, the witnesses are testifying from their home. They don't have to travel. I know Kevin Gostalza, the journalist who is covering this, he's one, I believe, the only credentialed U.S. reporter for the hearings. And if you're not following him on Twitter or at Shadowproof, I mean, this is where you should get your Julian Assange news from. Um, I mean, he, he, I mean, I think he expressed concerns about traveling to the UK during during COVID. Uh, but the technology has been very glitchy. Julian Assange has not really been afforded a fair defense. He's not really been allowed to to talk with his lawyers in the way he should. The U.S. over the summer entered a new indictment, a new extradition request, which keeps all the same counts, but changes the allegation of the conduct alleged. So it now goes beyond just the Chelsea Manning stuff. And it's a very bizarre indictment. I'm trying to wrap my head around what's in it. But it, it includes, you know, various other hackers, none of some of which were prosecuted in the UK. So it doesn't make sense why you would you would, you know, prosecute and then send Assange to the US. But the defense has been over these hearings, putting on a number of witnesses. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg is expected to take the stand, but hasn't done so yet. Trevor Tim took the stand and and talked about sort of the Trump war on journalism and how this is part of an assault on the freedom of press. Uh, yesterday, the issue was prison conditions in the U.S. Uh, and another day, there was a focus on how WikiLeaks had revealed uh, U.S. torture at Guantanamo and how the ICC has, or the ICE, International Criminal Court has been retaliated against by the Trump administration for exposing um, torture. And, and the big point is that this is an extremely unusual prosecution. No one has ever been prosecuted under the Espionage Act in the United States for publishing information. Plenty of whistleblowers have been prosecuted under it, mainly under Obama and now Trump but no publisher. And this is a real crossing of the Rubicon. And the fact that the Obama administration looked at this and decided not to do so, and the Trump administration has decided to do so, has been a major point of focus for the defense who argues that sort of shows it's a politically biased prosecution. I don't know how much hope Assange has avoiding being uh, extradited to the U.S. I mean, Espionage is is a classic example of a political offense, and in theory, there's not supposed to be extradition for for quote unquote political offenses, but that doesn't seem to be be playing in here. And you know, the UK has what's called the Official Secrets Act, which is uh, you know far more draconian than, in some respects, than our Espionage Act. And the UK does not 
have our strong First Amendment culture, uh, one of one of the few things we do quasi right is is that. So there's like a history of like you know using the Official Secrets Act to block publication of things. So I, I do I do wonder what this British judge hearing this, who is accustomed to sort of you know Britain's uh, more stringent state restrictions on on the press, is is thinking. It's hard to say though. Well, it sounds like Assange's lawyers are going about this the right way because, um, you know, my understanding of public opinion in the UK is that uh, they, while they love bad things and bad things about America, Trump is generally not very popular there. So uh, possibly tugging on the heartstrings of the judge if if the judge does indeed think that orange man bad. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a couple there's of There's a dang things. Cheeto in the White House, Judge. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think there's a couple of things here. I mean, I mean, British courts in exorcism proceedings have expressed concern about U.S. prison conditions before. Uh, unfortunately, one of those cases went to the European Court of Council of Human Rights, and they ruled against the defense um, and, and the prosecution kept bringing that up yesterday. But there is real concern about the use of solitary confinement, the conditions in supermaxes. And, you know, I uh, I read a, a newspaper called The Financial Times, which comes from the United Kingdom. And there was a a letter, a letter to the editor about Assange, I mean, a letter to the editor from The Financial Times reader. And this person just hated Assange. It's like he needs to do time for, you know, uh, bail hopping and be deported to Australia. He's an undesirable alien. But they're like, why would we? Why would we send him to the U.S.? That's clearly a political prosecution, and we Brits don't aid people in their political persecution. It's a very bizarre mm. letter. Um, I, I don't know how representative of the world the uh, Financial Times letter writing readership is, but I, I just thought it was interesting that this person who hated Assange wanted him deported to Australia, but found the thought of participating in this U.S. prosecution of him for publishing truthful information is just just abhorrent. Uh, in a weird way, if you're sort of a conservative British nationalist type, um, I, 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 could, I could see you being very upset by this. You know, Brexit was supposedly about you know, sovereignty, but, but no sovereign nation would, would participate in the extradition of Julian right? There's a, um, a lobbying effort underway uh, to try and convince Trump to uh, pardon Assange, um, which, you know, seems to, seems to forget that, as you mentioned, this is the administration that restarted these proceedings against Assange. Uh, the Obama administration, uh, concerned for the one and only time about the precedent it would set uh, for journalism to go after uh, Assange and try to extradite him to face charges in the U.S., uh, the Trump administration just was completely unconcerned by that and has gone full force to trying to extradite Assange. Is is there uh, like I don't want to attack people who are making the effort to 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 free Assange, but 
is trying to put pressure on the Trump administration the correct way to go about this, considering that it is Trump's Department of Justice. It wasn't it's not like an issue where Obama's Department of Justice prosecuted Assange and he's now in prison and a future administrations looking at that and trying to rectify it. It's this is the current administration that's prosecuting Assange. And it seems hard to believe that in the next uh, seven weeks before the election, they're going to suddenly reverse course and pardon him. I think a Trump pardon of Assange is extremely unlikely. I, I still think it's worth trying. I mean, Bill Barr is adamantly opposed to pardoning Assange. I imagine other sort of ghoulish people around him are, but but Trump is a very sort of erratic man and, and can make these sorts of highly sort of personalized decisions. Um, I, I, I don't fault anyone who is trying to persuade, you know, Trump to pardon Assange or pardon Snowden or pardon um, John Kiriakou, pardon reality winner. Sometimes people taking on some of those causes have, have tried to appeal to Trump in a way that under other circumstances I would find kind of unpalatable. But I, I, I do think this is an ends justifies the means situation. And, you know, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. I don't like that fact. He is the one who could end all of this today with a pardon. If he does that, good. Good for him. Um, I hope he does. You know, he says he hates the deep state. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he knows what that is. Um, I don't think the QAnon people, I mean, I was listening to these QAnon people talk about the deep state, and they're like, it's Congress, it's the governor, it's the mayor. And it's like, no, those are very much the non, non-deep state, right? The people you elect and, and are facing the public. <laughs> like, whole point of the deep state is that it's not those people. You know, if I had 15 minutes to talk to Donald Trump, I, I I might try this. Certainly, I would talk to him about reigning in the FBI. You know, I don't think it's going to do any of those things. I don't think it's a good person. I don't think his interest is good. But if, if you get in a room with the most powerful person in the world and they're an erratic person who makes whim decisions, I, I, I say go for it. Well, I know I... some people are going to disagree with that, but I, I really think that, you know, saving saving Assange, saving Snowden, I, I think it calls for a, a lot of extraordinary measures. Yeah, it just it seems like the strategy is that the Trump administration is the only game in town here. And to a certain extent, they are because that's the one that's in power <laughs> and holds all the cards. But we are very close to an election and not to weigh in on who's going to win that election, because I have no idea and I'm not even 100 percent sure there's going to be an actual legitimate election. But if Joe Biden were to be elected, he's not going to pardon anyone. Well, sure. I would not bet my money that he would pardon Assange either. But I'm I'm wondering if the odds improve slightly. I mean, we did see we did see Barack Obama commute uh, Chelsea Manning's sentence on his way out of office, even though he was responsible for uh, a lot of the uh, the torture that was implemented on on Chelsea um, that that maybe there I mean, I guess it's there's no good options among either party when it comes to the Assange question. I 
feel like you know what I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to speculate on who I think is more likely to pardon Assange and Snowden, Trump or Biden. It's both a very narrow chance. Yeah. Uh, the crimes, quote unquote, crimes of Snowden and Assange were during the Obama administration. Uh, a number of like MSNBC liberals have super super ridiculous views on them and their casualties of of the Russia. Russiagate hysteria. So I, I think that weighs against them quite heavily. Um, well, there's uh, there's Chip's uh, air conditioner chiming in to uh, say it's time to end Chip Chat this week. Is that Chip's air conditioner or the heat death of the universe? It's the heat death of the universe, hopefully. Chip, uh, we'll wind it up there. Uh, thanks so much for uh, coming you. on. You've got your Still Spying podcast, which is still going. still going. on. And uh, Wednesday, September the 16th, the Still Spying podcast is hosting a special event uh, at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We're having the author, Aaron Leonard, to do a, a live conversation about his new book about the Bureau and the Folk Singers, the FBI's War on Folk Singers. Who were tied to the Communist Party, not just they hated folk music. Hmm. Will there be any folk music on the podcast? I it's it's not a podcast episode. It's a live event presented oh. by the podcast, but because you know there are no live events, it's online. Uh, I don't I don't think so. But if you go to rightsanddissent.org, you can get the information about how to join this exciting event. And you can follow Chip on Twitter at Chip Gibbons eighty nine. We'll do this again next week. I hope so, unless Xfinity and the air conditioner conspire against us. (laughs)